Today on Not Cleared, we have another news roundtable with Kyle Scheidler, Adam Savitt, and Mike Waller. And we talk about a recent piece that Mike has up at the CSP website on the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor and how Soviet secret agents are one of the reasons that this horrible attack happened 80 years ago on U.S. soil. And that leads us into a very interesting conversation talking about how Pearl Harbor really shaped U.S.-China relations that we see today and can help explain the Biden administration's approach to China that we've been seeing recently. We then talk about a recent report from the Wall Street Journal that China is looking to build a military base in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Equatorial Guinea. And we finish by talking about state sponsorship, potentially in the United States and elsewhere around the world, of illegal immigration. Okay, so today on December 7th, when we're recording this, it is the 80th anniversary of the attacks on Pearl Harbor. And Mike wrote a very interesting article that we just posted on the website that we will have in the show notes um, talking about a story from Pearl Harbor of what happened that I personally wasn't aware of before. Um, and it get in, gets into the use of foreign agents that may have directly or indirectly had a role in the attack itself happening 80 years ago. So Mike, if you want to explain what your piece is about, because not a lot of people know about this, I don't think. Yeah, well, sure, Matt. Yeah, it's one of those parts of history that didn't get well publicized, and when history was being written about World War II, the classified information had not been made public. So this is a case of where you have a conventional military attacks that we're all familiar with, and we all know the pictures, but by the behind-the-scenes work were the secret agents involved. Who were they? What powers did they work for? What were they doing, and, and how? And so this is a story of Pearl Harbor where we don't have a direct cause and effect, but we do know that there were American citizens and senior American government officials who were working for Stalin as secret agents to get the Japanese to attack us instead of attacking the Soviet Union in 1941. So how was Japan just picking between us two or did Russia or the Soviet Union know that if they could, I guess, get the attention off of them, then the U.S. would just naturally be the next people that Japan would pick. Yeah, well, President Roosevelt had been yanking Japan's chain anyway. We had strong allies with Chiang Kai-shek in China. He was the leader of the nationalists in China, and America was very pro-China back when Mao Zedong and his communist group were hiding in the mountains. So the only Chinese fighting the Japanese invaders and occupiers were the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. So there was a great deal of American sympathy for China. So to help China against the Japanese invaders, uh, the Roosevelt administration imposed sanctions on Japan. So Japan has almost no natural resources. and They need to import all their energy. So they needed oil. And so we were, they were buying it from us or they were buying it from American oil exchanges. And so the idea was to squeeze the imperial Japanese of their oil to get them to back off from China. So we were already having a, a big conflict with Japan just over that. What happened was that uh, right after Hitler and Stalin parted ways, so, so they had their, their pact 
1939. June 1941, Hitler launches Operation Barbarossa. Shocks Stalin, his buddy, by attacking the Soviet Union. Stalin was afraid of a two-front war with Nazi Germany to his west and the Imperial Japanese to the east because the Japanese had their eye. They were occupying a section of China called Manchuria that bordered the Soviet Union. And getting the Eastern Soviet Union would have been a great prize for the Japanese. So to keep from fighting a two-front war, Stalin deployed his agents around the world, and especially in the United States, in the Roosevelt administration, to get the Japanese to attack America. Well, as you pointed out, Mike, uh, I believe within the, the Japanese military, the army was actually in favor of striking north, or at least that was their initial uh because obviously they wanted to use land forces to do that into the Soviet Union, while the Navy was was always advocating a seaborne uh, um, invasion to get resources in, in the Pacific, uh, the Dutch East Indies, the present-day Indonesia with oil and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, maybe, maybe those weren't the spies sort of pushing them in a direction they were already going, perhaps? Yeah. The question was, let's make sure they get there. So the, the Japanese Imperial Army wanted to invade the Eastern Soviet Union, so the Soviet Far East, Vladivostok, Siberia, and take that as a, as a large landmass and everything that that had to offer. The Navy, on the other hand, wanted to obviously go after maritime targets. So that was British interests in the Pacific. That was the big Dutch interest, as you just talked about. So when we think of Shell Oil Company, we think it's a an American company, but it was the real name was Royal Dutch Shell. And so they had uh, huge oil operations in Indonesia and in a lot of those island areas. And uh, But they had to keep us out away from expanding into the uh, Western Pacific toward Asia in order to be able to have free reign in that region. So the Soviets wanted Japan to attack us and the Brits and the Dutch interests and that's what their agents who were working in the Roosevelt administration were trying to accomplish. So they were sort of deliberately antagonizing, they were finding ways to deliberately antagonize the Japanese or to just promote a conflict between U.S. interests and Japanese interests? Yeah, so when you have a, a government that's divided or if it's wavering on what to do next in a war plan, well, you try to use your agents of influence to get them to decide in your favor. So what the Soviets did was they deployed a German communist who was born in the Russian Empire, Richard Sorgo, who was based in China and who was working with Chinese Communist Party people, American communists, British communists, uh, Japanese communists, moved their operations to Tokyo, and he posed as a Nazi uh, journalist, uh, ingratiated himself with Japanese officials, and his communist, his Japanese communist friends had their own networks throughout the senior levels of the Japanese government. So through those networks, they were able to influence certain elements of the Japanese imperial war planners to opt for the invasion of American interests first, as opposed to Soviet interests. That was the goal of this spy network. But to do that, they also had to work with their American spy networks. So these were Soviet agents embedded in the White House. Uh, Harry Hopkins, who's President Roosevelt's best friend, who lived in the White House. Uh, Lachlan Curry, who was a White House staffer in charge of China. Alger Hiss at the State Department. Uh, Harry Dexter White, 
senior figure at the Treasury Department who was very influential in designing the sanctions against Japan. These were all Soviet agents, not spies so much as passing American secrets to the Soviets as they were secret agents to covertly influence President Roosevelt's thinking and the thinking of our diplomatic and military leadership. So that's where they came in to sway the Roosevelt administration to squeeze Japan harder at a decisive time. To pull out to a broader level, actually, this reminds me, I think there's a parallel to the conflict we just referenced on the western side of the Soviet Union, the unnatural uh, alliance or pact, not alliance, uh, a promise not to attack each other between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. The fact is, eventually, those two ideologies were going to come to blows and there was going to be a war. There was some kind of conflagration of some sort there, but it was a strategic um, uh, cessation to that and that affected the trajectory of what happened in that region greatly. So in the in the Eastern Pacific, I would say it was inevitable that Japan in its um, goals and wanting to, you know, the concept of autarky, having its own empire with all, all of its resources, it eventually was going to have to attack or was going to brush up against the European colonial powers and the United States. It was going to happen. But it sounds like uh, the importance of these individual people that you're focusing on, that these agents like that, well, those are the agents <laughs> that a state would use to finally tweak when those events are going to happen to their advantage. Um, in a very complex world, as you point out also that, you know, so that this actually maybe clarify this, that for a little bit, we then went against Chiang Kai-shek, who was the nationalist leader in in China. There were some weird in between. And then maybe actually and speak to not only the Soviet Union, there was a, a Chinese communist uh, native communist movement, which at the moment was relatively marginal. They were hiding out in the mountains. Right. They weren't fighting the Japanese. That was led by Mao. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, this was a case where, you know, was it in the American interest to go to war with Japan in 1941? And if so, why? Uh, it was in Japan's interest to go to war with the United States. So right. therefore, you know, we weren't configured for a preemptive war. We were not a huge power. We had been pretty isolationist. We had our fleet all bottled up in Hawaii, so our Pacific fleet. So we weren't really ready. It wasn't in our nature. Um, we had no consensus to go to war against Japan, even though we had a lot of interests in China that we wanted to protect and protect uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government because he was an ally. We had the Philippines, though. That, that would be an example of our quasi-imperial holding. Right, and we'd had so. that for like over over 40 years by that time, the Philippines. And then the Japanese did yeah. did go there, and yeah. went after our interests. But we didn't have a, we weren't a, a global power at the time. So the it wasn't really a matter of if the Japanese would attack us, but when. How, because this just seems, you have a couple Soviet agents that go say a couple things to the Americans or the Japanese, and that prevents a Pearl Harbor happening on there. And like, that seems relatively easy on the surface. Like, was it that easy or was it more difficult? Cause this kind of goes to the subversion that you've talked about before on this podcast before where it's not, I guess it's more of a passive thing that they're doing ultimately. Well, Matt, it was, it was active and passive. So you th figure you just can't have an agent at the top pulling strings. I mean, you can, but it's not that easy. But what if you had agents at the bottom feeding the agents at the top? So if you had, let's say, uh, certain White House and State Department people who were Soviet agents, so this is, say, Lachlan Curry at the White House, appoints someone who's working for an international think tank that's heavily penetrated by the Soviets. 
and sends him to China to be the U.S. envoy to Chiang Kai-shek, who's fighting the Japanese, as his advisor, not just, his, not just as our envoy. And he's predisposed against um, Chiang Kai-shek anyway, and Chiang doesn't speak English. So when Chiang sends messages back to the State Department that's received by Soviet agents, they're written by this American who was put there in the first place, who was a soft on Stalin at best, whose control officer in the White House was himself a Soviet agent. See what the White House Soviet agent puts his person in China to work with Shang, writes the messages back in English that someone else in the State Department gets, and the White House says, oh, look at this that the State Department just got in from China. And then you have others who, who, who would view Chang, who's a, you know, any strong leader is going to be a difficult person. So they didn't like him for one reason or another. And then you would had other Soviet agents saying, well, he's, he's, a, he's a danger to us. And so over time, he's saying we shouldn't be supporting this guy at all. So you have all sorts of information coming in from down below, through think tanks, through journalists, through other countries. So you can say, as a serious analyst at the State Department or a serious White House official, completely patriotic, saying, well, we're getting all these things from our own people on the ground in China, but we're also receiving word from the Brits and, and others that, that Shang's a bad guy. So over time, you have a, a consensus building where you then have strong personalities in the Roosevelt administration who are also under Soviet control writing militant memos for the Secretary of State that just happened to have been drafted in collusion with a KGB officer. This is all uh, described in, in, um, in the book Stalin's Secret Agents by M. Stanton Evans and Herbert Romerstein. They went through not only documents from that period, but the U.S. Army Signal Corps had intercepted and decrypted the cables between Soviet control center and their American agents. And these were classified for 50 years or more. So put all these things together and you find a whole network of Soviet agents working at levels high and low to influence America and its defense against the Imperial Japanese. The well, thing that strikes me about this is uh, a term we, we use commonly today, which is echo chamber, where, uh, you know, by having agents in a variety of different outlets and places, they're able to uh, control the flow of information, such as you described, where you have one agent who writes a message and one agent who receives it, and they're both on the same team, uh, and it's not the team they're supposed to be on. Um, that level of, of information dominance uh, is, you know, we use the term now echo chamber to describe that, but it's... It's an old technique. You can see it in play here. Yeah, yeah Kyle, it's, it's really old. And the other part is there were other intelligence reports coming in from our own people saying entirely the opposite. Those reports got, quote, lost when they reached the State Department or the White House, and they never made it to the Secretary of State or the President. This might be a little feel from your piece, but I think maybe the li listeners are interested in a, sort of like a, a pop question or, well, this part doesn't pop, but I, you know, we're talking about setting the, the groundwork and the ideological and information space. But what, what would you say is the actual moment where war became inevitable? And, you know, there were different sanctions and this sort of thing, you know, what, what was that mechanism? And then number two, uh, there's a lot of whispers or a lot of Americans think maybe FDR knew, or like, you know, there was some kind of premonition, you know, who, who, 
you know, did anyone uh, know, quote unquote, about this attack and where would it be? You know, would it be lower level intelligence people or or just was guesswork? No one could have known. Well, there, there are different historians with different information. Yeah. Uh, from For today's purposes, we're just looking at uh, the Soviet agent networks within the FDR administration uh, that Stalin used to get the Japanese to attack us and not attack the Soviet Union. So it was pretty inevitable. I mean, everybody in Washington seemed to be aware that Japan was probably going to attack our interests at some point, at some time. Whether it was Hawaii, that was a big surprise because of the long distance, you know, maybe the Philippines or maybe right. our interests in China or elsewhere, but not necessarily Pearl Harbor. So whether FDR knew, some historians say so, I really don't know. But what we do know, and actually what American, um, a lot of American establishment foreign policy people seek to uh, paper over, is how deeply embedded these networks are. Because Alger Hiss, one of the main agents at the State Department, later became head of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, one of the main international think tanks based in Washington. And to this day, just a few blocks from the Center for Security Policy, the Carnegie Endowment still has Alger Hiss's portrait on its wall. So he helped bring and, and, and uh, a lot of lower-level people into the foreign policy process, get them titles, get them positions, and they became influencers of their own, who then influenced the next generation following on, who influenced the people running the show today. So there's a big reluctance, even to this day, to acknowledge the existence of these Stalinist agent networks. The other thing that strikes me that makes this conversation particularly relevant is we're still having a conversation in foreign policy today about how you know we there's there's sort of current alignment between the russians and the chinese uh and a lot of people have argued why is it that we can't get uh the russians to see that the chinese represent a threat to them you know the chinese have some of those same interests in uh <clears throat> in eastern russia in, uh, in Siberia and the like, it's still the same useful, valuable territory. Uh, and um, so a lot of people have argued maybe we can work with the Russians to get the Russians to deal with the Chinese. And they've so far failed at that. Um, That's a good point. I'd like to note that Tucker Carlson openly said that, that we should ally with Russia against the Chinese. I, I was pretty taken aback by that, honestly. I think the answer is that Russia knows the risks and China knows the advantages of of, of uh, seizing that territory slash other just inroads, and they they're making a calculated uh, decision to oppose the United States. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the Chinese are making a calculation having to do with Russian demographics. Uh, right. They know if they wait long enough, they can take it without a problem. Um, and I think they're both sort of playing the game where they're sort of taking advantage of the other one. Uh, targeting the U.S. So they're, sure. they're both sort of playing off. You know, you have the Chinese making noise about Taiwan at the same time the Russians are making noise about the Ukraine. And But it does get into these interesting questions where, you know, one, uh, these sort of geopolitical questions always come back again in slightly different iterations. But we're basically still talking about America's role in the Pacific. Uh, we're still talking about uh, 
Russia and China and what their relationship ought to look like uh, geopolitically. I mean, there was big questions during the Cold War over the Sino-Soviet split and what those relations really were and could we play the Chinese off against the Soviets. So in a lot of ways, these things never change uh, totally. They just change slightly in character as the years go by. So it's useful to study history in order to, to understand these questions today. Absolutely, in and in a global sense, which you've outlined, but also if we're just looking at the Pacific Basin, um, you know, and Mike wrote a fascinating piece about how we got into the Pacific War portion of World War II, but we're probably at a bookend right now, which is that we're, you know, we have dominated that ocean despite being thousands of miles away from the east coast of Asia. Uh, and now we're at a point where we're definitely being challenged, at, le at least in the more coastal water waters off of Asia for the first time in 80 years, I guess. Yeah. So. And, and we don't have, we don't even have some of the assets uh, that we had in World War II. I mean, our relationship with the Philippines is very different than it used to be. Philippines' relationship with China is very different from Philippines' relationship with Japan. Uh, so these are, I mean, these are all challenges as well. And also, you just and have China was our ally in World War II. Right. I mean, we had uh, it was a founder of the United Nations. It was one of the big five. Like when we when we did the Doolittle raid in response to uh, in response to Pearl Harbor, we could not have done that uh, without. Chinese assistance because we ended up having to land those those planes uh, in China. Another important thing is that though there was no big central powerful government on the continent of Asia at that time and almost like Japan was sort of trying to create that in a way in the way they were occupying China and trying to make themselves a continental power in Manchuria and possibly in Russia as well um, and that was following the century of humiliation they say in China where China had no central government or it was always there were civil war they were too uh, involved with their own internal matters to uh, project power very much you know and then at the end of that cent century um uh we we yeah we we projected our power over there so this this is the first time we have a really centralized aggressive continental power but it, it, it's interesting to think about uh mike you're talking about the long history of affection that the u.s state department has had for china going way way back um and it's often interesting to see the fascination that sometimes, um, you know, these bureaucrats acquire. You know, with uh, with China, for example, many of those early State Department people's parents were missionaries in China. So they had a deep affection for China, deep desire to have China on the U.S.'s team. Uh, and sometimes those old desires and fascinations uh, continue even when the circumstances have changed. Yeah, some became... Uh, pro-communist when China went communist. Some remained faithful to China and the Chinese people against the communists. And that was a big split where, where the, the uh, political and diplomatic establishment over, over a generation or two gravitated toward Mao and communist China after all the worst of his atrocities were behind him. But you, you had a strong affinity for China uh, yeah, going back a century really, with trade, our early trade with China in the late 1700s, uh, early 1800s. One of the matters concerning China and the secret agents, though, was to undermine Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese nationalists once Stalin decided to unleash the Chinese Communist Party, and really Mao, uh, once he decided it was right for him to go on the attack. So this was when it was to Stalin's advantage in the summer of 1943, to stab Chiang Kai-shek in the back completely, 
turn against him because the Soviets were aiding Chiang Kai-shek because it was in their interest to against the Japanese to turn against him, but also get Stalin's agents in Washington to do likewise. So when the Chinese economy was tanking their paper currency because of the war expenses, uh, Chiang needed gold to back up their currency. And the United States was going to loan China a very large amount of gold to back up his economy. It was Soviet agent Harry Dexter White at the Treasury Department and uh, Harry Hopkins in the White House, another Soviet agent, who put a stop to that, destroying the economy there, cutting off military aid to Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, right in the middle of the war when they were still fighting the Japanese. So this was a crucial time that paved the way for Mao four years after the end of World War II to finally take control over all of China and bring us to what we have today. So that's what I was going to ask, if this is where, I guess, the China that everyone knows and hates today originated mm. was back because i mean we're talking about how we were almost friendly with them we were very into, friendly with going China. into pearl harbor which is just bizarre yeah. to hear now yeah to at least people that have a brain it's strange to hear but so i guess yeah just talk about a little bit more how our relationship has devolved to where it is today and how i mean there are still people like you said that are very friendly to the chinese and would like us to be more friendly than we are right now sure well when um Chiang Kai-shek was being chased out of China with his army. Now it cut off of all international support. He moved his government, his entire government, fled the mainland and fled to the island of Taiwan, Formosa. And so the Republic of China, that had governed all of China, then fled to the island, Taiwan, but kept that same government. So the United States and most of the rest of the world continue to recognize the Chinese government as the Chiang Kai-shek government and his Kuomintang party on the island of Taiwan, up until Nixon changed it. So you can see the flags change. So whereas China under the United Nations during World War II, that means the five main allies fighting the Nazis and the, and the Imperial Japanese were called the United Nations. It was a United Nation effort. That became then the international organization that we know and don't love today. But the flags of the countries that founded it were, were the flags of that time in the 1940s. You see now at the United Nations, they change it to the, to the Chinese communist flag, which really rewrites history because it was not Mao Zedong's communist government that was a founder of the UN. And they've erased the, the Republic of China flag. So what we consider today as the flag of Taiwan which is a red flag with a red field and then a and then a blue field up in the upper left corner with a white sun. That was the old Republic of China flag for all of China. So so the name of Taiwan is still the Republic of China on Taiwan. It's kind of hard for us to grasp now so many years later, but that's the old Chinese government of the 1930s and 1940s that's running Taiwan today just under a different political party. You know, it strikes me that when you describe uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the Republic of China's fleeing the mainland as, as the communists come and take over uh, after all aid and support has been withdrawn, reminds me a little bit of the evacuation of Afghanistan, mm. uh, where, you know, you have this, this government that's being propped up in, uh, by foreign aid uh, as part of a, a fight against, you know, then it was, you know, Taliban, uh, you know, versus communists. Uh, 
And then all of a sudden, everybody seems to switch sides and and uh, they lose all support and they collapse. It's and just it's, even it's even more stunning though because literally there's armies of millions and millions that and they'd be fighting they've been fighting for a couple decades and then there was this crazy collapse. I haven't I, I don't know the the deep details of it, but but um, and it goes to what Matt says. It's just I mean what did happen? It was just I mean it's a revolution. The whole thing, the whole na- political nature of the country changed within four or five years. It was wiped clean. Yeah, I mean, um, I, and, and it get it gets to the power of these campaigns of influence and subversion that Mike is talking about when you can change the entire outcome of the war uh, in a way that has nothing to do with the actual fight on the ground. Well, it has something to do with it in that I think the nationalist forces... I mean, it changes forces, the well, outcome of it, yeah. No, in the sense that the nationalist forces, I believe, were bled dry because they assertively took on the Japanese, whereas the communists were generally hiding or, or triangulating right. in some way. And then, and, uh, then, and then they had their assistance suddenly cut, yeah. Right. If you sort of think of it as a, in a way, as a sports event. So let's say you're, a, you're, a, uh, you're an agent of the other team and you make sure that your opposing team doesn't have water and energy drinks. Mm. How are they going to succeed in their, in their contest that day if they can't rehydrate? Something that small can make a, a huge outcome affecting very powerful force. And so now you take that up on a global military scale and you can see that the influence that a single agent or a group of agents can have on changing something. So if you can starve uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese nationalists of, of borrowed gold, it wasn't, we weren't even giving it to them. We were just going to ship them the, the actual gold so they could have it to back up their currency, at which point after the war, once their economy got back on their feet, they'd return us the gold. Or just cut off their ammunition supply. Small things, well, big things like that, but it didn't involve the use of American troops to completely change the course of history. And then win a few initial battles after World War II and sort of get that momentum going, and then it becomes inevitable, and then the propaganda kicks in, and then, yeah, then it's done. Yeah, and, and, and uh, I mean, how many times in history has this happened? You know, whether it's it's the China example and then we had fights over who lost China. Then you had a similar situa- situation with South Vietnam, a similar situation with, uh, you know, Central America, with Central America, and, and which talked, in the we 80s. talked a bit a little bit about last time. Right. It just seems like. Uh, yeah, it's history repeats itself, yeah. except Korea, where we have that nice line. <laughs> we didn't fully lose it. No, I don't know. <laughs> And we had it all at one point, right? right. And General MacArthur pushed the communists back into China. Yeah. Now he overstepped his authority as military leader, but still, we we wiped him out. There'd be no North Korean threat today had President Truman just said, "Hey, you know, nice job, Doug. Let's just stay there and, and keep those guys out." Okay, so staying on the topic of China, there's this piece um, from the Hill, and there's been a bunch of pieces on it lately. Um, that there's these reports that came out recently that. China is looking to create one of their first, um, their first permanent military presence on the Atlantic Ocean, and they're looking of doing this um, off the coast of the African nation of Equator- Equatorial Guinea, according to a report from the Wall Street Journal, based on classified U.S. intelligence. So, I mean, that just sounds terrifying. Reading it there, and something that ties into this here at the center, we recently released the survey results, which I'll put in the show notes. Um, from 
center supporters and one of the questions they were ranking this on a scale from a b c d e to f on how president biden was doing on various national security issues and one of the questions was they were ranking president biden's ability to counter china's growing threats both overseas and here at home to the united states and the supporters gave 89 percent of them ranked that as an f 10 percent gave it an e and one percent gave d so nobody gave him an a b or c nobody that was polled really thinks he and his administration is doing a good job of countering china and this recent development really shows that so i mean adam do you want to just talk what number one is this i guess feasible which is hard to say yes or no but two what would this mean if they were to establish a military base there it's definitely feasible feasible physically i wonder if diplomatically slash you know if they can it it depends on our response whether how aggressive we're going to be in response actually yeah i'll skip to a a a very um weak uh quote from a senior biden administration official in response to this as part of our diplomacy to address maritime security issues we have made clear to equatorial guinea that certain potential steps involving chinese activity there would raise national security concerns does that feel so tough um, you don't so, say. Yeah. You're embarrassed <laughs> listening to it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, in any case, back to the basic uh, stage setting. So, Equatorial Guinea, just like it says in the name, it's literally at right at the equator. It's a, one of the tiniest countries in Africa. It only has about a million uh, residents. It is on the Atlantic coast. Um, it already has a Chinese-built deep water commercial port and highways to the interior. And this... Um, uh, is characteristic of when China builds uh, military facilities or you know projects its influence in general. Unlike the United States, it builds a pretty deep infrastructure, um, a literal infrastructure as well as inroads into the economy that um, that you know make that that give it momentum. Um, apparently, just despite that very weak statement earlier, we have we have criticized Equatorial Guinea on some level for human rights abuses of its own population and corruption and things that are endemic to African countries. But, you know, China doesn't have such qualms and and that gives them an advantage in a lot of these situations. They also uh, train Equatorial Guinea's police force. So that's an important fact. China does. China. Yeah. Yes. China trains their police force. If you you let communists train your police force, (laughs) let me tell you what happens next. Yeah, there you (laughs) go. What also happens next is that they supported that Guinea supported the Hong Kong National Security Law, which is the, uh, what uh, in, in uh, de facto made uh, Hong Kong uh, d- destroyed their freedom. Let's put it that way. So this has uh, been unfolding for a few years. Yeah, but, you know, and just looking at it, though, and like, d- dipping around a little bit, I think th- this story has played itself out um, all over the world. You know, um, let, let me find the number here. In the, in the past 20 years, uh, China has built 100 commercial ports. <laughs> Uh, overseas. So, you know, any of those could be a potential seed for this sort of thing. Um, other areas they've apparently looked at outside of their general waters, um, this is not at all a comprehensive list, Kenya, uh, in Africa, Kenya, Seychelles, Tanzania, and Angola. And Angola also has an Atlantic coast. Um, they already do have a, uh, a base in Africa on the very other side on the Horn in Djibouti, uh, strategically on the Bab el-Mandab Strait. It's right, right next to our base. I was going to say six miles away from our base, um, home to forty five hundred U.S. troops. Um, so yeah, this is this is completely credible. Um, and with that sort of weak response from the U.S., I mean, 
Um, yeah, the only thing that could uh, stop it would be strong U.S. deterrence, and they and they've kind of cut uh, pulled the rug out from underneath us because what levers do we have? Economic. Uh, China's already invested there. Uh, diplomatic. That's weak. Are, are we going to start? All we do is criticize them anyway. Right. Yeah. So we're going to start we doing naval patrols, them and we and we pretty much forbid so many of our businesses to do business in those countries under the guise of fighting corruption. It's okay to do business in communist China and be completely corrupt as long as it's corruption that looks good in an accounting spreadsheet and a lawyer signs off on it. But you can't do it in Africa. So we literally handed over the continent of Africa to the Chicoms. But it's okay because Biden's going to launch a whole uh, campaign against corruption as part of his democracy summit coming up next week. Well, that was something I was wondering when Adam was talking about it is, I mean, this is easier for us to say, but would this have happened, them trying to expand their bases like they are if Trump was president? Because he was a heck of a lot tougher on China than Biden was. And anything that Biden or Blinken says regarding this recent development, it's all just so wishy-washy. And I could see them going back on it a week from now, because I mean, we've already seen there's been a bunch of things that Biden has said, or Blinken has said that Jen Psaki has had to walk back like hours after they say it. I, I think deterrence is at an absolute low under the Biden administration. But as as we've just been discussing, China has been laying this groundwork and planting these seeds, and for precisely a situation like this, where the where the ground is fertile for those yeah. seeds, so they're just waiting and, for something yeah, like and, the Biden administration to come in, and they're preparing well. And they would have continued it under the Trump administration because there's elements of the of the State Department and other apparatus of our government that that would let it slide. Um, but no, but I think agency from the top, I think uh, rhetorical as well as some literal physical intimidation or, or, or you know, uh, shooting back, that sounded wrong, not literally shooting back, um, uh, w- would have a real effect. Yeah, yeah, we can't romanticize the Trump administration either. Uh, the president made some horrible personnel policies, and because of those horrible personnel policies, you had horrible policies. So you had unfit people, bad people, inept people, um, or simply the wrong people running a lot of key policy areas and ignoring certain parts of the world. Or they were often good people who didn't have the right political backup behind them, who were not able to execute proper policies. Secretary of State Pompeo did a great job, better than any Secretary of State in history, going after the Chinese Communist government. But it was really only him and a small handful at the State Department. But your Africa desk at the State Department wasn't that into it. I'm not so sure the Navy, with its Pacific projection concerning China, could even think out of the box in terms of China having an Atlantic base. We don't really know for a fact. The point is you didn't have a a, a logical personnel and policy set up in the Trump administration to put a full blockage on China. And he never, I mean, the Trump administration had never fully filled all of the political appointee and other positions uh, to staff the government in a a way that would have been effective. And even if they had done so, the probability that you have a political appointee overlooking, you know, Equatorial Guinea Hmm. is basically zero. You know, it's going to be some State Department hand that has been rotating through stations in Africa for the last 20 years. Or you say, well, let's make sure our energy supply is secure. Equatorial Guinea is a huge supplier of oil and gas. 
They had direct flights from Texas to Equatorial Guinea. Crazy, you know, relate strong relationships there. And so they're looking at it from that or saying, well, we can't be too close with Equatorial Guinea because of their human rights problems or they're too small to bother with or whatever other thing you can think of. Or, gee, they're not having our, our politically correct social revolutionary programs that we're trying to impose on these countries. Rather than having an overarching policy of uh, containing and, and denying China access to uh, <clears throat> you know, military opportunities like this. I think it is the often used failure failure of imagination, you know, that obviously, and for good reason, you know, 99% of our planning and wargaming and whatever, you know, is, is in the uh, in the Pacific where the vast majority of Chinese assets are and where our bases are that we need to protect in the various uh, island chains. Um, and, you know, I don't think this base would pose a real... Um, kinetic threat to our shipping and this sort of thing, but the strategic, the, the, sim, the symbolic and strategic ramifications on that level are something that obviously we didn't, we didn't think about. Or Yeah, there's a lot of non-thinking that <laughs> took place. And it sounded too outrageous. Oh, come on, China having an Atlantic right. fleet, really? Africa hosting a real Atlantic yeah. fleet? That's crazy you, talk. You know, well, it's, I'm, I mean, go back in history to uh, the era of European colonialism and what did they do? What did the European powers do before they expanded into Asia? They dotted Africa with coastal bases right. so that they could move their shipping all the way around from, you know, uh, Europe to, you know, to India or Indonesia or wherever else they needed to be. Uh, still, ostensibly, we have a kind of pro-Western regime controlling the Suez Canal, I guess. So, so they can't really use that for, for military operations. But but I think I remember, and maybe someone else remember the details better, that Iran sent ships into the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a port, but they did something, again, just a psychological thing. But, yeah. but how did they do that? They went through the canal? The yeah, canal? I think they yeah. did. All right. I think they just dipped into the Atlantic. But it's like... I'm trying you, to remember that when that happened. That yeah. may have... Did that happen when the Brotherhood was in control of Egypt? Jeez, I'd have to go back. I'd have to go back. I'd have to go back. Might have been that. Yeah, might have been that. Yeah, and uh, I mean, and of course, the Iranians still have have shipping that interacts with the Venezuelans and the Cubans, for example. So, So, you know, in those cases, it's even more symbolic because they just don't have the heft or you know the size of the navy to back it up. But um, yeah, no, if you had a fully functioning Chinese naval base, that would be yeah. Okay, so to wrap up, we're going to talk about the immigration crisis, which is still going on we haven't talked about it in a couple of weeks but it's still going on every single day tens of thousands of people are coming in and the topic of immigration was another issue that came up on this survey i mentioned a while ago and the one question was they were ranking on the same grading scale president biden's decision to reverse president trump's border and immigration policies which have directly led to these issues we're about to talk about and 96% of respondents rated that an F and 4% rated it an E. So people are not happy with the Biden administration's decision with respect to the border there. And another question dealing with this was just ranking President Biden's immigration and border control policies more generally. And 98% of respondents rated that an F. So there was a big consensus on how President Biden and his team have handled the immigration crisis thus far. And there are talks, or we have said openly or not openly, that um, talk, just talking about state sponsorship of illegal 
immigration, specifically from Mexico. Yeah, this has been an issue for many years, and that is hostile foreign governments coordinating illegal migrant trafficking for their own purposes to target us. And it, most of the information on it is classified. It remains classified. What's out there is sketchy. So it's been a really difficult issue to raise and have people take it seriously. When you think about it, Cuba, Venezuela, others would have an interest in flooding us with certain migrants to say nothing of the government of El Salvador, which just wants a, an escape valve for its population and a way to bring cash into the country. The thing recently, though, is across the ocean in Belarus and Poland, we see perfectly how a totalitarian dictatorship whose secret police is still called the KGB has, is visibly coordinating migrants, inviting them and allowing them into their country for the purpose of unleashing them on NATO countries like Poland. So you have then 100% proof of hostile state sponsorship and weaponization of illegal migrants to undermine and subvert and damage friendly countries in Europe. So we do have this issue of state sponsorship of migration, which is something that needs to be tackled. And we're now finally seeing something we can dig our teeth into and work on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about the Belarus situation is many of the uh, many of the European governments, which have long tolerated human trafficking into Europe through a wide variety of, of methods, most particularly across the Mediterranean, from Libya, uh, up from through Turkey, where you had Erdogan, who also used uh, migrants as a sort of a state weapon to leverage against his opponents, uh, and they've been, you know, unwilling to address it as an issue, um, and and welcome sort of welcome migrants with open arms, and it's interesting to see in this example with Belarus that some of that is starting to, some of the languages on that is starting to change. In this particular topic, they're willing to admit uh, that Belarus is doing what you've described, even though they aren't willing to admit it when it happens from other state actors like Turkey. Yeah, well, Belarus is bad. It's a bad <laughs> dictatorship. Turkey is a, quote, good dictatorship. It's, it's also a member of NATO. But one has to keep in mind that a generation ago, the Germans... As a, when as a population they decided they didn't want to reproduce to keep their population, and they have a huge welfare state and giant taxpayer-funded pension system, they needed younger workers to pay into the pension system so that the old non-producing Germans could live on the public dole. So they were welcoming in all these migrant workers. It's just when those migrant workers failed to assimilate and then developed their own entitlement mentality, and the Germans were already... Since we beat it into them, we beat in this sense of inferiority where they're afraid of offending people. That, that was part of denazification. Uh, decided that they had to remain tolerant as their country was being culturally wrecked. Yeah, I mean, I, the other element of state sponsorship, I think, is also sort of the, the passing of the buck element. Uh, and I was listening to a really interesting uh, briefing from this, the Center for Immigration Studies today. They were talking about the flow up through South America and into Central America through the Darien Gap in Panama, and they were describing how a lot of the 
uh, a lot of the South American governments and Central American governments are facilitating this migrant flow. And one of the major reasons why is simply to keep the flow moving and keep it from massing in their own state. So there's a lot there. There are the hostile subversion uh, motivations from states like Venezuela and Cuba, Belarus. We talked about Turkey. We talked about, and there are also in some states the motivation of just keep the migrants flowing till they get to somewhere that's not here. And all of these, I mean, all of these things need to be taken seriously. And I mean, you just don't see a serious conversation about about state sponsorship of migration, you know, at any at any level. So we're not obviously saying that the United States is being as blatant as like Russia is or something, for example, but by just the constant deflecting and the lack of seriousness, which they're taking the migration crisis, they are inadvertently. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the Biden administration is absolutely uh, responsible for creating a lot of the demand for, uh, for human trafficking and migration. Uh, you know when they when they made when they made certain statements prior to the election when they failed to you know there was an article uh, today or yesterday about um, uh, enforcement and deportation is down like ninety percent uh, when you do that you send the message that it's okay and you encourage people to take these insane risks to try to get here D- directly re- related to your keep a moving idea through each country this is we had another attack that worked, which was the stay in Mexico policy, right? And um, uh, that held, you know, that that incentivized Mexico to keep them outside of their borders. Um, yeah, and, and, and Biden, I think, ran on. Oh, actually, what just he legally he just was required to reinstate that. So yeah, so yeah. he got into office and immediately canceled it. Was then sued by the state of Texas and I think Missouri uh, for violations in the in the manner in which he ended the policy uh they then have tried a couple of times to get around it the last thing i read was that they have quote unquote reinstated remain in mexico but this time they have added uh any number of carve outs and exceptions to the policy and the problem with that is every time they do that word travels extremely fast in these migrant flows. So as soon as they find out what is working to get inside the United States, everybody will claim it. You know, I was talking to a friend uh, who follows this closely, and he was saying there was a period where uh, if you claimed uh, domestic violence, you could get admitted. So you had everybody claiming that their boyfriend or husband beat them up. Uh, And then that was changed, so that no longer worked. And then everybody was claiming to be gay. Uh, you know, including people with like, which four, they would never do back home, <laughs> including people with like four kids. Uh, and so the word word travels really fast. The other thing is you have these NGOs uh, that are operating in the migrant camps, uh, facilitating travel. And in a lot of cases, we have reason to suspect, you know, are coaching people about how to get in and say, well, you know, you're going to have to remain in Mexico Unless, of course, you feel some credible threat because you are one of the following, you know, and that very quickly gets translated back to, you know, everybody at home, like, hey, claim this and you're, you're going to get in. And also Mexico is a, is a very nationalistic country. They, they're a, no matter who runs the government, it's a Mexico first government. 
So when they're letting migrants in, it's usually to give them a direct bus ticket up to Arizona or Texas. But more recently, they've been choosing, uh, they've got their own inflationary pressures and wage pressures there. The country's come a really long way in terms of prospering. So even manual labor is much more expensive. So if they can get really hardworking Salvadorans from a country with no safety net, no social safety net to speak of, and no sense of entitlement, just really hard workers, and they'll work really hard pouring concrete for nothing in Mexico, the Mexicans would love to vet them to have them come as either migrant workers or temporary workers to help Mexico and then dump the rest of them on us or send them back home. Yeah, I mean, there's there's got to be ways to think about incentives to to create reasons to stay, and I think there there is some of some of that does need to be discussed. But when you look at the way the Biden administration treats it, they they don't actually they don't actually do that. They they claim they're going to address you know climate change or corruption or criminality or some of these things, but they don't actually talk about ways to make it better for someone to stay where they are than to come here. And they're fueling the cartels by inviting people up. It's just more cartel action, more coyote action, and at about 6000 bucks a pop to bring a Salvadoran illegal from there up to, say, the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, The cartels are making probably $3,000 a person. I mean, often at the center, we on various topics, we get discouraged with the federal government or federal governments, and we talk about federalism. So go back to something Kyle said about Texas and Missouri, you said, uh, sued over this policy, but also I, I was listening to a podcast with um, uh, Arizona governor candidate Carrie Lake, and she was proposing a state-based border force, something. I can't say I think that she t- wants to reinvigorate the Arizona Rangers. And this is, which sounds is a historical uh, unit. And uh, Ron DeSantis has revived some sort of state uh, militia of sorts in Florida. I don't know the, if there's a the Florida, the Florida State yeah. Guard. Yeah, it's like an yeah. um, it, it, it'll be like an emergency preparedness and reserve for the National Guard. So, so could these be a vital way to? I mean, uh, yeah. I so mean, this is the this is the debate that's going on in in Texas right now. Uh, Texas under Governor Abbott has allocated billions of dollars. Uh, I saw in a recent article they just haven't had a, a grant from a billionaire to help fund the wall. Hmm. That Texas is now acquiring private property to build their own wall. Um, that's going to still be a challenge because, of course, you have a lot of federal. You still have a lot of federally controlled territory that you can't do anything with. Um, you know they've they've put a ton of Texas to public apartment safety down there. They put Texas National Guard down there. Uh, the, problem we have right now is largely to do with okay so they can make arrests if they're if they catch migrants on private property which they're doing uh a lot of the um county district attorneys or especially in blue areas are just letting them go uh or or dropping the, the trespassing charges and even if you hold them you can only hold them for so long on a charge of trespass and then they get released and they get paroled into the United States. Mm. So you've inconvenienced them, but you haven't actually stopped anything. So the only thing that would really work would be catching them and returning them to Mexico. Uh, that's a that's a tough or, that's or, a tough thing policy wise to do. Or presumably a co- comprehensive and effective wall, which obviously is years off at best. Um, Right, and even then, yeah. like even then, if somebody, I mean, if somebody crosses that wall, okay. what what right do you have to stop them? Right. Uh, that's a you know, it's a border patrol function. Um, 
that's not, I mean, I'm not at all denigrating what Texas has done. It's been very valuable. It's important. But um, at a certain point, you're going to come to a challenge where a state governor is going to be forced to, to make a decision that's going to make the federal government really unhappy. You know, if Texas or Arizona or something simply says, we're going to catch you and we're going to ship you back. Mm. Uh, that's going to make the federal government very unhappy when that happens. And I think we're seeing these conflicts arising and accelerating with uh, COVID with these national quasi-legal orders that aren't quite laws, you know, and that states are being very assertive and saying we won't obey this. Um, oh, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's 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 uh, not just on the border issue, on, on, on a host of other issues. We're, we're seeing this this tension grow between state state governments and, and, and the federal government because the federal government has abandoned uh, a lot of its uh, fundamental responsibilities or it has, you know, out and out decided that it's going to facilitate uh, <laughs> the, the illegal uh, human trafficking that they're supposed to be stopping. Uh, and, and, you know, state governors have to look out for their states. They have to look out for their citizens. And at some point, they're going to make a decision what's best for the people of Texas or the best for the people of Arizona is for me to take action in in the wake of, uh, you know, what could arguably be described as an invasion. Uh, and states have a right to respond to imminent threat of invasion under the Constitution. So if you, you know, if the federal government doesn't do something soon, they're going to face this challenge, I think. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you.